to seek to be reconciled with us. Grant us the grace this day to receive the immeasurable gift of love you offer. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. We've been talking the last couple of weeks about what worship is and what it isn't. And the whole reason for doing this is so that we might live into the fullness of God's wide open love and mercy. If there was a posture for today's gospel, I would say it would be this. If I could stand with my arms like this the whole time just to drive the point home, I would, but I am quite certain I won't last for 10 minutes, not even probably three but we've also been talking about myths about worship. And today's myth that I want to drive home is this idea that worship happens one day a week. But the reality is, is that, like most activities that are integral to our well-being, worship was created to be an everyday occurrence. And so the paradigm shift that we need to make in our minds is to understand that worship is not just for Sundays, but for every day. The early church surely understood this, that worship was an everyday activity. When we look at King David, who famously said, I will praise the Lord at all times. I will constantly speak his praises. David was also known for dancing and playing his lute. Part of the reason that we have moved away from this idea of constant worship and praise is that we've turned church into something that we go to. We turn the idea of worship into something that happens only at church. It's part of the culture at large. And as a result, we've perpetuated the idea that God lives in the church building and that we worship him on Sundays. That is, if the music suits us. But you don't worry about music, do you? This mindset gets exacerbated by the fact that we live in a spectator society. We go to movies, we go to plays, sports events. We sit in front of the TV expecting to be entertained. Leisure time is meant for entertainment. And this expectation has crept into the church as well. Worship is not something that takes place only at, in a church service. In fact, I would say it has little to do with the actual plan service, while it's critical to the vitality of a thriving faith that we participate on Sunday mornings, worship neither begins or ends at church. Rather, worship is an activity God calls us to engage in each and every day. When we wake up in the morning, when we hear children laugh, when we feel overwhelmed by life circumstances, 
when we embrace our spouse or a loved one, when we see a sunset, when money is tight, when we enjoy a great meal, when we hear a beautiful song, when we see a long lost friend, when our family members are driving us crazy, when we breathe in a fresh, sweet spring breeze, when we enjoy the beauty of the sunshine, worship is an all the time, constant endeavor, just as David modeled for us. Worship isn't just for Sundays, but for every day. And the reality is, is that God wants us to be engaged in this ongoing relationship with him. Not just one hour a week. He wants us to be like family. The key to making this worship part of our everyday life is to get into a habit of worshiping God whenever we're in his presence which happens to be every moment of every day of our lives. And as we awaken to this reality, to this paradigm shift, to this gracious love that he is extending every minute of every day, I believe that we will find greater joy and happiness, for we are made to worship him. That is how we are designed when we become aware of the all-knowing presence of God that permeates our minute-by-minute reality, we're going to be better able to worship him every day. In his work on this topic called Praise Habit, David Crowder writes, When good is found and we embrace it with abandon, we embrace the giver of it. I'll say that again. When good is found, and we embrace it with abandon, we embrace the giver of it. His premise is that when we open our eyes to the blessings around us and recognize that everything good comes from God, then you can find him everywhere. He continues that, yes, in church at 8 and at 1030, there is that time that we worship God, but there is this opportunity to worship him also in the seemingly mundane. In the traffic on Tuesdays at 5.15, in the doctor's office, in the colors of the sunset, on the other end of a tragic telephone call. Every second is an opportunity to praise there is a choosing to be made. And this is a point that is important. But there is a choosing to be made. The impetus is on you and me to make the choice to worship God every day of the week in every circumstance we face. It comes down to choice. When worship isn't our default, we have to practice, especially when things aren't going well. 
So discovering how to worship regularly In doing this, we can raise our level of continual praise, which will increase our joy. The reality is, is that we're made for ongoing relationship with our Creator. Worship on Sunday only will not sustain our faith. It will not give us the vibrant, mature Christian faith that God intended for us. And like so many relationships, the more frequently we connect, the greater the joy, the more potential in the relationship. You see, God wants to be in an ongoing, every day, every minute relationship with you and I, just like the Father in our story the compassionate father wanted to be in relationship with his two sons. The challenge is making it a habit to connect with him daily. And daring to receive this embrace means that we've got to let go of our unworthiness, of our trying to do it ourselves and receive the embrace, the robe, the ring, and the party as the sons and daughters of God Almighty. We are co-heirs with and through Christ Jesus who paid for our sins, thereby making us worthy to stand before God himself. And we stand white as lambs thanks to Christ's work on the cross. But like the sons in the story, we sometimes keep our distance, either out of distraction as with the oldest son possibly, or because we're running as far as possible from him, as was the case of the youngest son, or by seeing him merely as a means to an end, which was the case of the eldest. You see, they both, by asking for their inheritance, had said to their father, we'd rather you just be dead. That was the meaning of their action in Jewish inheritance tradition. And as I've wrestled with this text this week, because I've seen it from a whole new angle, that both sons, they just didn't want anything to do with the father and this loving compassion, I thought, what is that that causes us to run? What is it that causes us to stand at a distance like this? To hold on to our selfish pride that's conveniently encased in a dress of unworthiness. I think that at the end of the day, most of us are plagued with this feeling of unworthiness for God's love. And yet, at the same time, we yearn to be accepted and, on some level, fully embraced. Well, Brene Brown, who is a social worker who has gone on to do research around shame, writes in her book, Daring Way, 
where she finds in her research shame resiliency, that there are these people that have a way of being resilient to the shame that everyone experiences. And she saw in these particular people of the 10,000 that she interviewed that they had a way of living life that was larger than most, that they dared greatly to live in the arena of life with vulnerability and courage. It didn't mean that they didn't get cancer or they didn't fall down, but that they continued on with this courage. They didn't hold back, but they dared to be seen and vulnerable in their relationships and to show up fully as who they were meant to be. And she said in all of her research, what she found was that these particular people believed that they were worthy of love. That was the key difference. Now, I have a theory can't go interview these people, but I suspect that these people know something of the grace of compassionate love, the grace of this father that he's offering his sons and he offers you and I daily. And I have to wonder if these people have actually come to accept God's grace in a different way or on a deeper level and see that through Christ they've been made worthy of love and therefore they're able to love freely. They're able to forgive as they are forgiven. They make space for others in their lives to be imperfect and real and they love them anyway. And they love themselves because God loves them. And there are those who feel they are unworthy of God's love, and I would say I fall in that category off and on. And that what that does is causes us to reject this wide, open, compassionate, gracious love being offered by God and keeping him at a distance, not because of his judgment of us, but because of our own self-judgment. It's a stubborn sort of pride stance to say, I know better, God, I am unworthy. When in fact, he has said, I have made you worthy through your, my only son. But just like the father with the youngest son and the oldest, if we will but give him an inch, he will take it. If we will but repent of that un sense of unworthiness and say, Lord, God, forgive me and help me to receive the full measure of your grace and mercy, he will take it. But when we stand convicted and convinced that we are unworthy, like the eldest son, we might go through the motions but we don't see the truth. We don't see the full freedom that is offered to us. 
we're still trying to manage it as a business relationship based on exchange. Maybe because to fully grasp the grace and compassion offered would mean the undoing of all sense of control, of all sense of predictability, because when that much grace comes washing in, there's this liberty. I had a taste of that this week. So I returned to a place that's like home for me, the Villa de Mattel, a place I've been going since my 30s, some 25 years, where God had led me to a woman who was a hermit, who had nothing but compassionate love for me. It didn't matter how long I stayed away. Every time I came back, there she was with her arms open wide and this beautiful smile on her face. Hello, dear. I'm so glad you're here. And my epiphany through this text this week and being there was realizing how I had cheated myself from so much more that could have been had with her, where she passed last year, had I gone more often. But my own struggle with my unworthiness to receive that beautiful, broad love kept me away. And I realized, oh my gosh, that is our relationship with God. That when we go self-judging and making up stories of what he might think of us, most often they're wrong because the truth is, is that what he thinks of us is that we are like that son that was dead and has come back to life. And he wants us in fellowship with him each and every day, every minute of every day. And it's in this place we can live this freedom. It is so much more than what we would allow ourselves. But grace says, give me an inch and I will take you and envelop you and make you sons and daughters the reality is, is that we are sons and daughters in our baptism. Like it or not, like it or not, you are worthy because Christ has made you worthy of love. So the challenge this Lent is to lay down that sense of unworthiness and say, God, I choose to receive your grace gift. I have a challenge for you the next 10 days. to worship, to worship him, to try and make a daily habit. If you give God your first 15 minutes, just spending time with him. I've got clear instructions back there in the back. The other is to say breath prayers. As you go through your day, quick something happens, or thank you, God, for my job. Thank you, God, for this beautiful, sunny day. God, help me with this situation with my children. 
Just keep an open dialogue with him. And then at bread time, before you go to sleep, to acknowledge his presence in your day, to note the places where he blessed you, and to note the places that were hard in your day in which he was with you, whether you felt it or not.